Well, that's true. We are talking about, as Adam said, we are talking about uh, what makes Lakeland Lakeland and uh, Adam saying it's family. And uh, I'm going to talk about another part of family and you'll see here in a moment what we're talking about. So, but what does make Lakeland Lakeland, everyone? I mean, if you took a, a DNA sample of Lakeland, what, what's Lakeland made of? What would you find? And there's a lot of things in there, but I just want to talk about one today and it's a big one. Uh, what makes Lakeland Lakeland? I think most of us kind of know, it's just hard to put into words, and that's where I'm going to try and throw a little stuff at you here. So we're like, yeah, that, that sounds like it's about right. So to find out what makes Lakeland, Lakeland, we must take a journey back to Jesus. So let's begin our journey with the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, if you have your Bible or if you want to pull it up, uh, especially you guys at home, makes it easy. And uh, Luke chapter 19 that favorite Sunday school story of Zacchaeus. So, Zacchaeus. You know, Zacchaeus, a wee little man, was uh, he, and a wee little man was, was he, and he climbed up a sycamore tree so he could, uh, the Lord he wanted to see. Remember that? Luke 19. Here we go. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. And a man was there named Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. And all who saw it began to grumble and say, he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. You know, chief tax collector. Zacchaeus stood there and he said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, anything, I will pay back four times as much. Verse 9. And then Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Luke chapter 19. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he, and he climbed up a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Preeminent New Testament scholar I. Howard Marshall believes this story in the Gospel of Luke is the pinnacle of the entire gospel. This is where it peaks out. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. That this is the entire message, that the primary message that Luke is trying to get across. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek out and save the lost. That's the central point of Luke's gospel. What makes Luke's gospel Luke's gospel? The answer is, is that Jesus came to seek out and save the lost. But What does this salvation look like? For that answer, you must back up one verse to verse 9, just before verse 10. And then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house. Why? Because he too is a son of Abraham. Notice that this story takes place well before Jesus is hung on a cross Notice that salvation has nothing to do with Jesus' sacrifice or an atonement uh, or his resurrection. 
There is no healing here. There is no miracle here. All it is is an encounter with wee little Zacchaeus. And yet, salvation comes. And according to verse 9, that salvation looks like Zacchaeus regained his identity as a son of Abraham. He regained his identity. And that is salvation. Once again, Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. So Jesus declares that Zacchaeus is what he has always been, a son of Abraham. It is Jesus declaring this and making it so for him. Of course, Zacchaeus had become lost. He lost being a son of Abraham because he took financial advantage of his own people through overtaxing his fellow Jews. Lost his identity. So what makes Lakeland Lakeland? Well, in a single word, you ready for this? In a single word, what makes Lakeland Lakeland is baggage. (laughs) Baggage. I mean, we have several things around here in the DNA, but right near the top is baggage. Baggage makes Lakeland Lakeland. Lakeland is filled with Zacchaeus' wee little lost souls whose baggage has dragged them away from being anywhere else. People who have lost their identity. And then they come to Lakeland and they find out who they are. Now, I understand baggage is not a term of endearment. It's not like you want to write baggage on your next job job application. I have baggage. Hire me. But on the other hand, everybody has it, right? And it gets stuffed down and it gets hidden and it gets put in the back of the closet and all the rest of it. And every now and then, like several times a day, it comes out somewhere. And if you have baggage, you are in the right place because our baggage takes us to Jesus. Over and over and over through the Gospels, people with baggage and messed up lives show up at Jesus. And Jesus gives them a new identity, and we too become children of the Most High God around here at Lakeland Church. You can try and do church without baggage, but you know what happens then, right? If you just try and clean the whole thing up, you end up a bunch of uptight moral fundamentalists. It's not really Christianity anymore, you know. You kind of need some baggage to be real Christians. I grew up in an uptight little fundamentalist church. that, And all that meant was that people just did their sinning in secret. My moralist mom had a bottle of wine in the back of the china cabinet, down low and in the dark. And I'm not sure how it got there. But every now and then, my dad would notice that the wine bottle level had gone down. Margaret, have you been drinking the wine again? Deny, deny, deny. Always deny. And then my dad would step outside and have a cigarette. (laughs) Years ago, a man in this church was caught in adultery. And we were all trying to help him put his marriage and his family back together. Now, at the same time, I had been studying the Presbyterian Book of Discipline. How to discipline the flock, right? And it was full of rules. It was pretty uptight, and I decided I was going to go all Presbyterian on the next person who needed to be disciplined in the church. So I was going to do things right. I was going to do it by the book. I was a new young pastor. I was trying to figure this thing out. And so I told him, okay, look, here's what you're going to do, cotton adultery. So you will come into church. You will come into the sanctuary, and then you will leave, and you will not interact with anyone, and you are not allowed to take communion. He's kind of sitting there, and he kind of looks off, and he goes, wow, communion is the one thing I needed. 
I didn't know what to say. Like, okay, take communion, and I stopped reading the book of discipline. What do you do? Yeah, you, uh, you look through the Gospels, and you see Jesus surrounded with, with people with tons of baggage. You see sin. You see hang-ups. You see messy lives. You see people crushed and infirmed. And that causes baggage. And Jesus, just to start things off, just go through the Gospels, just to start things off, Jesus is first off born to a nobody, a little peasant woman named Mary, probably a teenager, right? Jesus grows up in backwater Nazareth. Has anything ever good ever come out of Nazareth? No, because it's Nowheresville. It's Ava, Missouri. You know what I'm saying? Everybody from Ava just went like, what? His first disciples were just Common fishermen, they were not brilliant scholars or prophets or scientists or anything of his day. They're nobodies. Perhaps even made more common, according to Ray Vanderlaan, you know, RVL, this guy from Western Seminary up in Michigan, Ray Vanderlaan. He says, Peter, James, John, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were not good enough to be adopted as students of a, of a rabbi of, his, of their time. They were losers. They were leftovers. Not good enough. All the other guys got to be, you know, follow a rabbi. Not these guys. From there, at the beginning of the Gospels, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. He heals many sick, multitudes, it says. Cleanses untouchable lepers. Heals a paralytic. Fixes a withered hand. Jesus reinterprets then the Old Testament Torah law, renouncing cheap divorce, once re- and therefore reestablishing women, Name-calling is now called murder. If you call somebody a fool or an idiot, it's the same as murdering them. He talks about oaths and truth-telling and being a person of character, loving your enemies instead of getting even. He gives a poor widow back her dead son. He heals a woman's fistula, restoring her to the community and back to her life. And along the way, he's constantly casting out demons. And I have only talked about the first six or seven chapters of all four Gospels. Just to get us started. Not even a third of the way through. Baggage, baggage, baggage. And Jesus is coming in, healing people and restoring them to who they were. But then, in all these stories... In the Gospel of Luke and the others, in all these stories, we come to, in my opinion, one of the most moving and beautiful stories in all of the Gospels. Recorded in all four, but only Luke spins it entirely different and saw the situation entirely different. And here's the story. Picture in your mind a fine Middle Middle Eastern cleric, a rabbi, dressed immaculately, a holy man, a religious leader, political, of course, a first century Pharisee in a small town, and he invites Jesus over for a formal dinner. It's at his home. It's no ordinary dinner because there are other well-heeled community leaders there. Perhaps a few of Jesus' disciples, if they behaved and dressed up a little bit, they're attending as well. But it's, it has a public gallery around the dinner. These are people who want to come watch the rabbis 
talk and discuss the matters of God. The people in the gallery do not get to eat the dinner. They just get to be there and they're happy to be so. Jesus is important. He has uh, become very popular. He has raised the dead. He has healed people. He has reinterpreted the Old Testament law. And they want to hear what he has to say, particularly when he's being uh, challenged and in discussion with Simon, a famous rabbi of the town. They all sit around a low table, leaning on their left elbow with their feet extended. And then she enters. She is a sinner, perhaps a prostitute or a repeat adulterer, and she is nothing but baggage, and the entire town knows it. And before anyone realizes what she's doing or anyone can react or do anything, she breaks open what scholars say is a full year's wages of alabaster, pure nard uh, perfume. How she got it, I don't know. And that perfume, she begins washing Jesus' feet with the perfume and it's mixed with her sobbing tears. She kisses his feet while wiping them off with her long hair, which was a total disgrace to let her hair be revealed in the first place. Now, in that culture, it's forbidden by the Old Testament law to make physical contact with someone who has been classified as a sinner, a prostitute, an adulterer, a divorcee, or even someone who has a chronic illness. Once touched, you become unclean as well and cannot attend synagogue until you have followed the the law according to the Old Testament law. The dinner crowd is totally appalled. They don't even know what to do. It's so unimaginable. The fundamentalist religious host, Simon, rabbi, thinks to himself, if Jesus were any kind of a prophet, he would know, he would know what kind of defiled wretch this woman is who touches him. She is a sinner. And then, in a very prophetic way, Jesus reads Simon's mind and says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, replies Simon. There were two men who owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him $50,000. The other one owed him $5,000. Neither of them them had the money to pay it back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, Simon, which one of them would love him more? And Simon replies, well, I suppose the one with the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not have a servant offer to wash my dirty, dusty, sandal-wearing feet as it is customary, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me even so much as a handshake, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. And therefore, I tell you, Simon, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, 
Who is this that forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Luke chapter 7, verses 47 through 50. Once again, everyone, once again, salvation looks like Jesus giving you a new identity. Baggage overcome. Once again, there is no cross here. There is no resurrection. There is no miracle. There is no sign. It's just simply Jesus saying so. What makes Lakeland Lakeland? Well, nothing says Lakeland more than when a few years ago someone pejoratively commented about our church. Oh, Lakeland Community Church? Yeah, they'll let anyone into that church. And they did not mean that as a kind thing. They meant all those people just like those people who were at Jesus' feet. And that's why if you want to understand Lakeland, you go back to Jesus. We're not a perfect church. We're a church with baggage. But we are a church where every one of us has been given a new identity, restored to who we truly were as children of God. And yeah, the baggage seems to kind of crop up a lot, and we all know it. But we're not sweeping it under the rug. You know, for years I've thought, if we were more black and white as a church, you know, like what I grew up with, if we were either more fundamentalist, you know, or more like the cancel culture, you know, like let's not forgive the unforgivable. Like, well, I guess you're not going to forgive the unforgivable if they're unforgivable. You know, if we were either more conservative or liberal, we'd probably draw a really, really big crowd. And it gets sort of attractive, except I can't bring myself to do it. It feels dishonest to say like, yeah, we're going to get all fundamentalist around here. I bet you we'd draw a really big crowd if we were like that. Instead, Lakeland kind of goes into this, some guy standing up here saying we all got baggage. And I guess that's not a crowd pleaser. But it sure sounds like the people who are around Jesus. And we deal with it. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And that's who we are. So, maybe that's you. I want you to know that if your baggage is hanging out somewhere, you're in the right place with some of the right people, and then the timing's up to you. Everybody's got secrets, and everybody's got something to hide. So when it's time, you come on out. Find some friends for the journey, and let's see if we can't be this family together called Lakeland Community Church. Let's wrap things up with a little video from the elders talking about the DNA of Lakeland, what they think is cool about it. It comes out of the book of Acts, chapter 2, for me, where it talks about people doing meals together, praying together, worshiping together, giving to each other, giving to each other as they have need. And just how wonderful that has been, that that is the focus of our lives together. Uh, the 
met around this table, been doing breakfast together now for more than 20 years. I tell people that, and they're like, oh my goodness. I kind of say that now too, but uh, I think that's pretty amazing to have a group of guys that I can lean into and share life with, and uh, just how beautiful that is. The gospel calls us to that. We think children are absolutely critical, so uh, whatever we can do to provide the one thing, the one thing, Jesus, to children, you know what I mean? Like, what, what else could be more important than we do everything we can to make that spiritual foundation that, you know, one day they confirm and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Here at Lakeland, we have continued to have the financial campaign be one of those staples in our process. We haven't moved things necessarily into a budget. Um, we'll always do financial campaigns. That will, it's just a part of our culture, it's part of our ethos for who we are, to help us continue to give it away, to open our hands, to be in a space where uh, all will learn about stewardship over and over again and continue to become a more giving person. That's a good thing. I think that Lakeland has instilled in a lot of its congregants that desire to make a difference, either here or globally. Seeing them thrive and know that we have their backs and to see them just accomplish so much and how their dream grows, you know, that's been really cool. I remember when our family joined Lakeland, which was about eight or nine years ago, it was terribly exciting to us to see what Lakeland was involved with, and it, it felt that we were part of the global village of, of Christianity, and actually of humanity, speaking of other religions, that, that all of this was going on and that we were contributing to God's kingdom work um, through Lakeland was part of what made us decide that we needed to join this community. Thank you.